Magician's Niece presents Sinisterhood by Helena Marie Chandler. Music by Adrian Romero. Chapter 15 The Dodo. Mrs. Wade called for Dawn to come downstairs. There was someone here to see her. Dawn didn't really notice that Mrs. Wade's voice was dark and sad. She didn't see her red and blotchy eyes. Dawn hadn't seen Nigel for several years. She hardly recognised him when he came into the living room. He'd grown a beard and had got quite fat. He'd always been so slim and handsome in the past. But still, she squealed with delight at the sight of him. Uncle Nigel, she said, I haven't seen you for ages. Have you brought home Auntie Kira? Nigel's face wrinkled almost at once. He looked at the floor, and then he bent over, and then he started to cry. It was in that moment that the realisation hit Dawn. It hit her so quickly that it felt like a train hurtling towards her when she hadn't had the time to leap away from the tracks. So it's true then, she asked, what I saw in the paper. Nigel didn't reply at first. He took in one long, deep breath. Then he wiped away his tears with his handkerchief. He crouched down to look at Dawn, straight into her eyes. I'm not sure what you've seen, my love, but I'm afraid Auntie Kira isn't with us anymore. I know she isn't with us. That's why we haven't seen her. Nigel looked at the carpet. He took another long, deep breath. I mean to say that Auntie Kira is dead. Somewhere deep inside, of course, Dawn had already come to this conclusion. She had tried so hard not to believe it, though, during these past two days. Even so, she hadn't been able to sleep with the nagging worry. She tried to wish her Auntie Kira back into existence, but she knew you couldn't just will things not to be true. Uncle Nigel sat down on the sofa. Dawn came to sit beside him. He took her hand, told her that Kira was in a better place now. Dawn thought that this comment was extremely odd, but she didn't at first think she needed to question it. What I don't understand is why she was on a cruise in the first place. Auntie Kira hates cruises. She told me she had the norovirus on a ship with Derek once in a place called Crete. Did you know they had to stay in their cabin for three whole days? She probably didn't tell you, Dawn, but Kira was a very, very unhappy lady. And when adults get very sad, they can do things that don't seem very logical or like themselves. She always seemed very happy to me. Nigel didn't answer. Dawn began to feel sick. Her eyes were getting all watery. For the first time since she heard the news on the radio, she let herself really cry. She began to pour her thoughts out to Uncle Nigel. Maybe it had all been a big misunderstanding. Maybe Kira was going to walk right through the door. And then they'd go on a walk on Wimbledon Common and have a pizza later on, just like they were going to do at the weekend. I'm afraid she's not coming back, Dawn, said Uncle Nigel. But if you want, we can go to the restaurant and for a walk. Dawn had only ever felt this sad when she heard that her daddy had fallen ill. She didn't understand then what had happened to him, and she certainly didn't understand what was happening now. She looked up at Uncle Nigel. 
Let's go, Uncle Nigel. You can take me on a walk, all right? Nigel parked his smart car in the drive of Auntie Kira's house. Dawn had to shut her eyes. She couldn't bear the sight of the place. It was all empty now, like a ghost house. Who's going to live here now, Uncle Nigel? asked Dawn as they left the car. I don't know. I just hope that the bastard Derek and his kids don't manage to get their dirty mitts on it. Dawn didn't know what Uncle Nigel meant by dirty mitts, but she certainly didn't like Derek, and she certainly hoped that he would never live in the house. Dawn thought the best idea was to keep the place just as it was, in case Auntie Kira decided to come back home. They soon left for the common, walking side by side. Dawn took Nigel's hand and asked if she could ask him a question. Uncle Nigel, she said, what do you think of my mummy? That's a very strange thing to ask. Dawn said that she'd been thinking of her mother quite a lot these past few days. Did he know that Auntie Kira had gone to visit her just before the cruise? I think that the cruise was a present from my mummy, she went on. Gosh, that's very generous, not how I remember her, the tight git. Dawn wondered what Nigel meant by tight git. She decided to tell him that she didn't think her mother was a normal person. Nobody's normal, Dawn. I'm not normal and I'm afraid you're not normal either. But we're not bad people. I try not to be a bad person. Dr Jones says it's very important to be as nice as you possibly can. Well, all I can say is she used to be my sister-in-law and I'm glad she's not my sister-in-law anymore. I don't know. I haven't seen her in years. Perhaps she's changed. But she sent me away when I was just four and she sent my daddy away too. I don't think she likes us and I don't think she likes Auntie Kira. Liked, Dawn, said Nigel softly. You do understand that Kira's not coming back. Dawn wished she hadn't heard those words. Dawn wished she could just imagine her Auntie Kira was still here. She felt hot tears welling up again in her red eyes. I'm sorry, dear. I know you two got on so well. Nigel had changed his tone. It sounded like he was trying to be a little bit more uplifting. Your mum and Auntie Kira were very different people. Victoria was a bit more like your grandmother, and Kira was a bit more like your granddad. I don't know what they were like because I never met them. Never mind, Dawn. It's best not to dwell on the past. What did Auntie Kira used to say? Always look on the bright side, said Dawn and Nigel, almost in unison. Nigel laughed. Dawn found herself laughing too. It was a relief to Dawn because she'd been worried she'd never be able to laugh ever, ever again. bedroom in the middle of the night in tears. She'd been mulling over what had happened to Kira, she'd said, and she just couldn't seem to work it all out. Why was Dawn's mother in the paper, for example? Why did she send her sister on a cruise to die? Etta told Dawn that now enough was enough. She was sad to say that Kira was dead, 
but Dawn had to try to come to terms with it. The worst thing she could do was go about accusing her mother of something crazy like murder. Making the witch angry would be a really bad idea. Etta herself had had a long history of tricky situations with her parents. She knew her father was the only son left of her very important grandparents. He had been a very big disappointment because he'd drunk all his daddy's whiskey. She also knew that her own mother had never been considered part of their famous family. Apparently, she was from the wrong side of town, but Etta couldn't work out what that meant. Etta had spent the first years of her life with her grandparents. Her father had been sent far, far away. He was an embarrassment, apparently. He didn't know how to behave. Her grandmother would say that Daddy had chosen a wife just to irritate his parents. Etta often thought that if he hadn't, she wouldn't even be alive. Etta invited Dawn to come into her bed and sleep beside her. They would sleep side by side in the same bed for the next few weeks, because Dawn kept saying that she didn't want to be alone. Kira now, but I can. It might have been a rainy day when they took the photo. Poor light. I don't know why it looks like me. Maybe they made a mistake. But it's strange that so many things have happened all at once, and none of them nice. I don't know what you're talking about, Dawn. I have also been bereaved. I don't know what you're trying to insinuate, but my girl, I do not like it. Why did you put her on a cruise? Dawn, the woman committed suicide. End of story. I don't know what was going on inside her head. She took those secrets to the grave. She always looked happy to me. My God, she was trying to put on a brave face around you. She was trying not to hurt your feelings, because you are so very sensitive and difficult, you know, and it's tricky to judge how to handle you. Have you ever thought it might be your condition that makes you so paranoid? Do you see Nigel or Dr. Jones or any of the other adults thinking anything strange is going on? But Dawn's feelings were hurt. But it wasn't by Auntie Kira for leaving her. It was by her mother for being such a witch. Chapter 18. The Vulture. Dawn? Dawn, are you there? Are you listening to me? Victoria couldn't believe it, that this idiot child of hers had rudely slammed down the phone. Victoria also couldn't believe her bad luck, 
to have been burdened with such a tempestuous and irrational child. What a hassle Dawn was. Never had she ever been anything more than a nuisance. No use to man or beast. A ball and chain dragging her, always dragging her down. The amount she's cost me over the years, said Victoria to herself, has been quite preposterous. Can't she at least be grateful for that? Victoria had never even wanted the girl. She'd never really wanted to have a baby at all. Somehow Rachel had got her to do it. Or was it Geoffrey? In any case, the idea most definitely hadn't been hers. Victoria came to the conclusion many years ago that this whole motherhood malarkey was a complete and utter con. Victoria began pacing around the kitchen. For the first time in her life, she thought about her own mother and wondered how the old bird ever could have coped with her own brood of children. Yes, Victoria admitted that she'd been a bit of a handful as a child. Hyperactive, one might say. But Kira, well, she was a sly little thing. Tricky, manipulative, always ensuring that everyone else was firmly ensnared in her knots. But Victoria had to focus on the immediate question. How she was to deal with her own fink of a dodo-like daughter. She could join Auntie Kira in the garden hideaway, of course, she thought. But Victoria soon changed her mind, coming to the conclusion that she couldn't kill off the girl so swiftly, so soon. In fact, she realised to bump Dawn off this year would be foolish, particularly given the recent termination. She didn't want all those associated with her to drop below ground like the proverbial fly. That would be far too suspicious. Yes, it was a subtler approach that was required at this stage. Manipulation rather than murder. She thought about Kira, how her saintly sister had been such a lovely mother figure for her own insolent child. She thought about the gaping void that Kira had left for Victoria, how the place of perfect positioning had now suddenly emerged. Victoria could do Mumsy. She could do anything. She was gifted. She resolved to park herself in Kira's empty spot. To do so, though, would of course not be easy. The challenges would be many. Victoria had never even had the benefit of motherly experience. Any opportunity had been rudely torn from her hands that unfortunate day when Dawn had to be sent away. Victoria would have to go to the library in order to make up for lost time. She'd have to read some books written by motherly people. Perhaps there'd be some guides about adolescent girls. But her challenges, of course, would go far beyond the lack of proper experience. Because dastardly Dawn would be pushing her back all the sorry way. How that girl had got so unnecessarily thoughtful these past several years was an utter mystery to her mother. Weren't Down's people supposed to be simple, stupid, and the kind of individuals who conveniently took everything at plain face value? It was only later that afternoon over coffee and cake at the Marks and Spencer's cafe in town that Victoria found herself having a fantastic brainwave. Oh yes, this one was quite brilliant, and the thought of the double manipulation was quite thrilling and intense. She had to quell a giggle, lest the other shoppers think her mad. In any case, Victoria didn't want to get ahead of herself. She'd have to pull it off, of course, and that was not at all guaranteed. The target of her next enterprise? 
that psychiatrist who chatted to Dawn twice a week. Yes, this was to be a sort of gaslighting by proxy and via official, trustworthy means. For Victoria to get Dr Jones convinced of her own niceness, her maternal concern and kind intent, would be to destroy any of Dawn's sinister suppositions. Yes, this was to be the way ahead. Victoria set off for home in her sporty red MG, her cheeks all aglow with her pride and newfound resolve. She dashed inside the house, nearly tripping over Karma and Sutra as she went. She threw her coat to the floor, even though it was Burberry, the one she never admitted she bought as a reject with a tear on the sleeve. Victoria jumped onto the telephone. She cleared her throat, rounded her mouth, lowered her voice to little more than a whisper. This was to be her newfangled, caring tone. The school receptionist answered her call. It must have been destiny. Dr Jones had an available appointment, first thing the very next day. It would be during that appointment that Victoria would work out the psychiatrist's weak spots and win her over with all the appropriate words. had 20 years experience as a psychiatrist. She graduated from medical school in 1965 with a first class degree, the only woman in her year to manage it. She'd also, earlier in her studies, taken a fourth year out to obtain a Master of the Arts in Feminist Theory. Her supplementary degree provided her with a lens through which to view life and a lens through which to lead it. Sophia was mostly interested in the writings of Simone de Beauvoir and Germaine Greer. She had learned from the writings of Miss Greer that marriage was bound to end in disappointment. In any case, both circumstance and choice had meant that she'd never met a man worth the bother. None of them, she'd found, weren't cowered by her own intellect. There was, of course, that one professor of hers back in her university days, but she found his attempts at nurturing her gifts quite condescending and repulsive. Furthermore, Sophia had never met a member of the male sex who agreed with her perspective on life. This was, of course, nothing but confirmation of their own misogynistic ways. Indeed, the men she encountered professionally, medical men, were so convinced of the biological differences between males and females that Sophia would get frequently quite annoyed. It was obvious that these so-called scientific views were nothing but a means of confining women to a subordinate role. At university, Sophia had been accused by some of adopting apparently postmodern ideas, but Sophia had more than ample qualifications to prove the validity of her stance. Her perspective on the human mind was purely rational. In any case, she didn't go in for any of that European mumbo-jumbo, de Beauvoir and de Rigori aside. The fraudulent writing of the so-called psychoanalysts, for example, held absolutely no interest for her. Yes, Sophia was sure of her perspective on things. It gave her great confidence that she was acting for the good in this world. She dedicated her whole life to her work, no husband, no family, 
and she very much enjoyed it. Growing up, her sister had had Down syndrome. In those days, of course, the wisdom was to send them away to some ghastly institution. Her parents, though, forward-thinking liberals, had decided to keep Molly at home. Sophia had had a good relationship with her sister. They had a good relationship still. And she doubted that there was another woman in the country so well-qualified and knowledgeable as her about the condition, at least from a psychiatric point of view. One of Sophia's principal gripes with the conventional assessment of the condition was that those who had it all had a very low IQ. Down's children couldn't think for themselves. They had a stale and bland imagination. In her own experience, however, some of her patients had an extraordinary insight into the mechanisms of the world. Some of them were hugely perceptive. What was lacking, however, Sophia found, was a proper ability to use logic or common sense, so essential in shaping and guiding what would otherwise be a brilliant gift, a boon of creativity. Sophia arrived that morning at work at seven o'clock. She did so every morning, no children and husband wasting her time, no head lice or housework holding her back. She had no school uniforms to iron, no breakfast to make, no office lunch to prepare for an incapable spouse. Sophia was free, and that's how she liked it, utterly free to dedicate her life to her life's work. Sophia hung her black uniform Macintosh on the back of her office door. It was raining outside, and she was glad to get into the warmth and security of her office. She slumped down on her sofa, thumbing through her diary for the day, and she noticed that the secretary had penned in a phone call with a certain Mrs. V. Burton Swift at 9am. Sophia realised straight off that this lady must be Dawn's mother, and she realised that she had never spoken to the woman before. It was poor Ms. Dunleavy with whom Sophia had always previously had dealings. Now that Dawn's guardian had gone, Sophia thought that perhaps her mother was planning to take up the reins. The phone call from Mrs. Burton Swift came in ten minutes early. It was immediately clear to Sophia that this was a mother solely concerned about the welfare of her child. Ms. Dunleavy had always been such a loving woman, and Sophia was almost spooked by how similar the two women sounded on the phone, both of them so softly spoken, both of them gentle and kind. Mrs. Burton Swift spoke of her daughter's happiness and safety. She was worried about her, she said, very worried after the death of her aunt. They'd got on so well, you see, she said, and I just can't help but worry about my little Dawn now all alone. Sophia herself had never had a maternal instinct. She was caring, of course, and loved children, especially those in need. But she could hear that instinct in this woman's voice, and she took great pains to reassure her that everything possible was being done at the school. It struck Sophia just how hard it must have been for Mrs. Burton Swift to send her daughter away so young, even though it was all done for the best. She realised, too, that it must have been bittersweet to hand over guardianship to her sister, given the geographical distance between the family and the school. It was in consideration for these hardships that Sophia Jones agreed that the best way forward for mother and daughter was to provide Mrs. Burton Swift with a detailed report of Dawn's progress each week and to arrange that the girl spend the October half-term holidays in Northern Ireland at the family home. Sophia found herself warming to this woman. 
a single lady like herself. But more than this, she had both a husband and a daughter in homes at opposite ends of the country. Yes, Sophia had strong beliefs about life, but she was also very considerate towards those who had made different choices than theirs, and she particularly found herself warming to those whom she felt were suffering. Sophia didn't mind it, therefore, when the conversation began to take a personal turn. Mrs Burton Swift, no, Victoria, please, asked Sophia about her own life. Was she a Wimbledon resident? Did she enjoy her job? Was she a family woman with her own husband, her own child? Oh no, not me, Sophia replied. I don't go in for such things. You're a lesbian? Sophia was shocked by this blunt question, but she laughed it off. It wasn't the first time she'd been asked and she didn't doubt it would be the last. In any case, she was impressed by the sense of humour and resilience that this woman still had in the face of all her terrible losses. She decided to play along. No, no, not at all, she said. I'm married to the job. I quite understand, said Victoria. A good man is hard to find. Most of them aren't worth the bother. Well, I have certain views of life, replied Sophia breezily, and most men don't seem to think I should have them. Sophia did feel a small pang of anxiety that she'd been too open, that she'd overshared in this professional setting. But her main concern was that Victoria, Mrs Burton Swift, was put at ease, that she felt heard and understood, that she felt Sophia could be trusted with the care of her own and only daughter. If that meant making herself a little bit vulnerable to a woman whom she'd never met, so be it. In any case, Victoria was a nice woman, was obvious, and her main concern was the welfare of her precious daughter, Dawn. contacting her mother, but Dawn just couldn't quite drop her suspicions that something not very nice had happened to her aunt. Why had Dawn never received a phone call? Why did Kira go on a cruise? Why was there a picture of her mum in the paper? Why was everybody saying that Kira was so unhappy that she ended up killing herself? The questions were endless, and her mind just couldn't switch off. Dawn was beginning to think that Etta was right all along, that she should not have started questioning things at all. Dawn knew, however, that she was going to have to talk about her inner whirrings with Dr Jones later on that afternoon. Dawn made a list of all the things she was worried about, and she put it in her pocket, just in case she forgot anything during their talk later on. Dr Jones was so insightful, such a thoughtful lady, so caring and so kind that Dawn was sure she would give her good advice. The first thing, however, that Dr Jones said to Dawn when she arrived at her office for her session was, I spoke to your mother this morning. I got to know her quite well. Dawn was about to say, yes, and she's an absolute witch, but Dr Jones carried on in a chorus of ill-placed praise. She is a lovely lady. 
I can see why you're such a lovely person too. She really is concerned about you, Dawn. You're lucky to have such a loving person to replace your Auntie Kira. Dawn was too confused to react at first. She began to find herself speechless. How could someone so thoughtful, so good at looking inside other people's brains be so wrong about her mummy? Dawn fingered the list she'd made in her pocket. She began to screw it up into a ball, began to think it was for the best if she didn't take it out. And she wondered about what she was going to say to Dr. Jones. She was sure now that the lady wouldn't listen to her. She sounded so very convinced. Dr. Jones started asking Dawn some silly questions about how she felt and what she'd been up to during the week. Dawn made simple replies. She was distracted. Perhaps she was wrong about her mother all along. Perhaps her mother had always been nice and she just hadn't seen it. For a dreaded second, she thought that Kira was the one who'd got it wrong. Maybe the sisters had been enemies and it had been Auntie Kira who might have poisoned Dawn's mind against her own mother. Dawn kept trying to focus on Dr. Jones's questions and she kept racking her brains as to any time that Kira had been nasty about her mum. But she found that she couldn't even remember a single example. Dawn decided she would tell Dr. Jones about her thoughts, but she wouldn't make the identity of the person she was talking about very clear. And so, as Dr. Jones was harping on about being allowed to cry and why some people who seem happy end up not being able to cope with life anymore, Dawn interrupted the psychiatrist. Dr. Jones, she said, can I ask you a question? Of course, my dear, fire away. How evil do you have to be to murder another person? It depends on what you mean by murder, Dawn. If it's in cold blood, or if it's an accident. Anyway, don't you think it's a bit of a strange question to ask? I just wanted to know if you have to be a really evil person to do it, or if somebody who seems like a normal person could end up doing it too. Well, some people do think that anybody is capable of anything given the right circumstances, but I tend to think that some people are fundamentally good and some are fundamentally bad. Are women more evil than men? Most certainly not, Dawn. Men have exerted a great deal of evil and damage on our world over the years, but that doesn't make them any more evil than women. They've just had more opportunity so far. Dawn was getting frustrated. She didn't mean physical violence, she meant sly violence, nastiness. Dawn thought that she mustn't have been explaining herself very well. Dr. Jones asked Dawn if she was worried that she was going to get murdered. She said it was a silly thing to worry about because it just wasn't possible at all. Just because your aunt isn't here to protect you, Dawn, doesn't mean you're not safe at school anymore. Dawn twisted her lips as she thought of a reply. She didn't know how to put this. I don't think I'm going to be murdered, Dr. James, she said. I just think someone might have murdered my aunt. Chapter 21 The Vulture 
Victoria believed in fate. She had reason to. Over the years, she'd found it very kind. Victoria had a good relationship with fortune, karma, or whatever you wanted to call it. She found that she could dialogue with it, that she'd often be granted a sign. Sometimes, when she wasn't sure if one of her enterprises was on the right track, she'd ask a question of the universe. And wait. And wait and see if it gave her a generous response. Great kindnesses on occasion had been granted to her by the mystical movings of the world. A significant example of this was Geoffrey's swift demise. Victoria had originally intended for the man to actually die, but in the end she found that the final result of her meddling could not have been more sublime. True, the expenses of his home had mounted up over the years, but she had the kindness of her heart to blame for that. Geoffrey had always been a decent chap. She put him in a decent home, even though he could have made do with just a state-funded one. After all, these days he was little more than a vegetable, and he'd never be able to tell the difference anyway. Fate had also given Victoria a certain number of opportunities in terms of her latest project. The Great Maine Sewage Lie, for example. The fact that Kira had taken on Victoria's plainer looks and plumpness. But there had already been, this time around, a few mistakes and hiccups. When she dealt with Geoffrey, nothing and no one had got in her way. Victoria was beginning to think that fate may have been kind to her that first time around because there had been no money or financial reward involved. The troubles had curtailed Geoffrey's businesses during his final competent years, and so Victoria knew that, even in his demise, he would not be the deep font of fortune for which she had in her younger years so fervently hoped. Victoria's motivation for that first, attempted termination was simply that Geoffrey was beginning to bore her. He'd become a mope, so downbeat, disappointed with missed opportunities. She'd resolved to show her husband what true suffering really was. The silver lining, of course, in the failed attempt had been the unexpected award by the company's board of directors of quite a decent pension. Victoria had pulled off the act of the nearly bereaved widow so well. The only problem with this extra money was that she'd got the taste for six holidays a year, not two. And indeed, the pot was now dwindling and she was living well beyond her means. Victoria had had a brief stint as a nurse in her early twenties not long enough to incur any of the pitfalls of the serious world of work, stress-related wrinkles, hair loss and weight gain, but enough to garner a basic understanding of human anatomy and the workings of life-saving medication. She knew that, given the stresses of Geoffrey's business failings, it wasn't unlikely that the man suffer a heart attack or a stroke. What's more, his family had a history of high blood pressure and cholesterol, Victoria was one to always think outside the box. Murderers often killed their victims by introducing a poisonous substance. But what if she did the reverse of this and took a substance away? This would not be a murder, but a shadow of a murder. How could one work out that a life-saving medication had been removed and that a placebo had been given in its place? The non-violence of this method did, of course, have a downside. It wasn't foolproof, necessarily terminal, or even quick. 
she'd have to supplement her scheme, first with extra salt in the dishwasher and nightshade that she grew in the garden added to soups and Geoffrey's nightly gin. In retrospect, Victoria realised that Geoffrey's survival was the best result for which she could ever have asked. No post-mortem will ever be done when he finally kicks the bucket. Originally, she had trusted to luck and the fact that so many overworked men in their fifties keeled over with heart attacks, aneurysms and the like, rarely meriting any further investigation, useful information she'd gleaned during her nursing days. The whole enterprise, therefore, her murder in reverse, had taken much patience on her part. Victoria had found pain relief tablets that were indistinguishable in appearance from Geoffrey's prescription blood thinners. She simply threw those in the bin. Of course, during that time, Dawn still occasionally came to visit and she had had to ward her daughter off touching the nightshade during her endless hours spent in the garden, looking at all those silly birds flying so high in the sky. Victoria had had to tell her daughter that the poisonant plant was what killed all the dodos, what made them go extinct. If Dawn even dared to touch them, she'd said, she'd certainly go that way too. Victoria wasn't thinking at present of killing her own daughter as well, but she was thinking about how best to deal with the girl, particularly now that this first of the weekly letters she received from Dr Jones indicated that the girl was onto something. Fantasies about some mythological evil woman, for instance, troubling delusions about murder. But Victoria had the good doctor on her side, and as long as Dawn didn't manage to convince any quick-witted accomplices to help her, she was sure that all would be well. with no one there to help her. True, Etta was a great friend to Dawn, but she wasn't Auntie Kira, and she wasn't Dawn's daddy, the daddy whom she loved. It was so difficult for Dawn now that both her father and her aunt had been cruelly taken away by accidents and ill health. Dawn would so rarely see her daddy after she'd been sent away to boarding school, just as much as she'd rarely see her mother. Dawn had only gone home to Helen's Bay three or four times in about 13 years. The strange thing was that her mother would always be telling her off whenever she tried to speak to her father on the phone. She said it was because he, under so much stress and so very ill, couldn't cope with the upset. But Dawn knew her daddy, and she knew it wasn't true. Dawn knew that her daddy would be feeling just as lonely and helpless and upset as she was feeling now. It was so sad that Daddy was nearly brain dead. He'd got so stupid, stupider than her. He couldn't even write. He couldn't even speak. Dawn thought about him all alone in his home, and she felt such sympathy because she was all alone in her home too. Etta was telling Dawn all the time not to keep thinking about what had happened. 
Dawn needed to move on, Etta said. She needed to turn her eyes away from her mother because some families are prone to fights and it's never worth starting another one. But Dawn did keep thinking about her mother and she saw her mother at night time in her dreams and it wasn't very nice what her mother did in her imagination. It was very strange, Dawn thought, that people kept getting ill and dying very young in her family. People died young in the olden days, but people didn't die very young now. Except for Downs people. Some of them, Dawn had learnt, didn't live very long at all. But Auntie Kira was only 50, and Dawn's daddy had a stroke when he was only 46. All those numbers made Dawn's head hurt. It hurt Dawn's head especially because 46 wasn't very old at all. Dawn was finding the summer holidays at Lotons quite boring especially because Auntie Kira hadn't come back yet to take her out to town. Dawn had nothing better to do than to tag along to the library with Etta, where her friend was working on her special project about her family. Dawn didn't like the library, but she did find the people and events in Etta's family quite fascinating. There was the old woman who drove around Belfast in her big yellow Rolls Royce, and the elephant in the garden, and the bear in the bear pit, and the boys who were sent off to war. It was later that afternoon, when Dawn was ambling between the bookcases, fingering all the plasticky, dark-coloured spines, that she found herself in the science section. She saw a book about medicine, and decided to take a look. Inside, on the front page, there was an alphabetical list of illnesses. Dawn saw that there was an entry about strokes. She sat down on the scratchy carpet and began reading to herself aloud, but as quietly as she could, so as not to attract any attention. Strokes are more frequent in men than in women. The vast majority of strokes take place in people over the age of 65. Risk factors include hypertension, heredity and stress. Dawn thought to herself that her daddy was most certainly under a lot of tension living with her mother, but she wasn't sure what hypertension and heredity meant. She flicked through the pages to the section about words beginning with H. Dawn still had this notion about her mother hovering in the back of her mind, but surely she hadn't been the one to give her own daddy a stroke. Dawn kept reading. She found that she didn't understand all the complicated scientific language that was there written on the page. But Dawn did see a part where the book was talking about avoiding certain foods like salt and alcohol because they could make you very, very ill. Dawn's mummy did all the cooking at home. At least she did when Dawn had been there to stay. Who knows, maybe her mummy was too lazy the rest of the time and paid for a cook instead. That wouldn't have surprised Dawn. But did she do anything to make Daddy more ill with his food? Dawn couldn't get this thought out of her head. Her Daddy liked alcohol. He always had a gin in the evening after work. Last time Dawn had been over, her mummy had been growing plants in the garden to make Daddy's drinks taste nicer. Apparently that's what you did with gin. You could put lemon or lime in it, or pepper, or cucumber, or orange. You could add all these little extras. Once, when Dawn was in the garden, looking at the jays and the goldcrests and the grey wagtails, 
she spotted a new plant that her mummy had put in the flower bed. It had pretty purple flowers and sometimes small black berries and she was going to taste one and then she heard her mother shout at her high up from the kitchen window. Stop that! Those berries are enough to kill a dodo. All these things Dawn thought about, she was sure had happened in real life. She knew they had. She was almost certain she wasn't making it all up. But no one would believe these little stories, because stories on their own didn't mean anything. People might say, Dawn thought, why would your mother want to put her husband in a home? They would think it was silly to kill a sister you hadn't seen for ten years. In any case, both Auntie Kira and Daddy were such nice people. They'd never done anything wrong to anybody. They'd never done anything wrong to Mummy at all. But people just didn't know Dawn's mother. They didn't know she wasn't like everybody else. They didn't know how angry she could get. They didn't know the kinds of extraordinary things that only she was capable of. Chapter 23 The Sparrowhawk There was one thought that haunted Geoffrey the darkest, a sombre spectre that hovered in his muddled mind, obscuring almost all else. It was the greatest error of his life, marrying the wrong sister. Geoffrey called it an error because it had been just that. It hadn't been a choice. The marriage had been hastily arranged, a situation he was unhappy with. A situation thrust upon him, quite literally in this case. In those days, the early 60s, men were expected to do the right thing if a woman's honour was at stake. The irony was, of course, that he felt, at the time, that the only honour in question was his own. The whole circumstance had taken him by such surprise that he wasn't even sure what really happened. It took him many years of reflection to realise that it was Victoria who had jumped on him. It was only in recent times, as he sat in his wheelchair with nothing else to do but sift slowly through the sludge and shadows of his mind, that Geoffrey had come to think that it wasn't unfathomable that the tiny little girl had, in fact, orchestrated the whole thing, and from the very start. Geoffrey had been seeing Kira for several months already, it's easy to say it in retrospect, but he thought that they were very much in love. In the beginning, he couldn't say that he knew very much about Victoria. He didn't even meet the girl until much later on. Any mention by Kira of her sister had been made in derogatory terms. Vesuvius was her nickname, he was told, like a volcano that would sporadically erupt. Kira told him of her physical strength, her rages and conviction. When he first saw her at the New Year's Eve party he held at the big Helen's Bay house he just inherited from his uncle, he couldn't believe that the little brunette before his eyes could be capable of such anger and tirades. It would be three weeks before they met again. Geoffrey had bought tickets for the opera. Kira had fallen ill at the last minute and it was suggested by her parents that he took young Victoria instead. It would be such a shame to waste those tickets. Little did Geoffrey know that the evening would herald the waste of his life. 
Geoffrey had put on a brave face during the performance. He tried to be polite. In any case, he wasn't even sure if Kira's reports had been somewhat of an exaggeration. Until he saw evidence of Victoria's volatility with his own eyes, he decided he wouldn't pass judgment. In fact, at least during the early part of the evening, it seemed they were getting along quite well. He actually found himself warming towards the girl. She was quite bubbly, vivacious and good fun. It would only be later on that the bright future of his life would be rudely torn from his hands. It was a blow all the more painful given the unexpected nature of the assault. Crowds were filing out of the opera house. Victoria took Geoffrey's arm as they left the building and walked towards his new red jaguar parked on the opposite side of the road. Geoffrey hadn't intended for there to be any suggestion of intimacy with this woman, but he thought it wouldn't be right to cast her arm away. Soon after they stepped into the car, however, he was sure he could feel Victoria rubbing his leg. It was dark. Geoffrey was intent on not making a fuss, so he cast his eyes through the windscreen and resolved to drive away. He set his car in reverse, but Victoria suddenly pulled up the handbrake and she wouldn't let it go. This was a 17-year-old girl, so audacious. The sheer shock and awe of the process completely clouded his mind. Until this day, Geoffrey still couldn't truly remember what happened during the subsequent five minutes, but he had vague memories of lying on the back seat. What made it all the more confusing was that he found himself physically responding to this woman, even though he was absolutely certain that he wasn't in control. He certainly had no intention of sleeping with her or marrying her or even seeing her again. But Victoria's intention was quite clear. And it became clearer still when the deed was done and she smiled at him and said, Now 